If you would open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 12. This morning we'll be in verses 1 through 14. My favorite book of the Bible is in the Old Testament, it's the book of Exodus. And I um, had the pleasure of meeting with a, a young man regularly, week to week, and, and he and I together are just reading through and enjoying Exodus uh, together. I've read it several times. We, we preached uh, the whole book of, of Exodus a few months ago on a Sunday night, and, um, and I love it because there in Exodus, there are these, these themes that are introduced that find their way throughout not just the rest of the Old Testament, but even into the, the New Testament as well. Perhaps the, the most pivotal moment in the book of Exodus is in Exodus chapter 19, as Israel has come out of slavery in Egypt. They are gathered around at Mount Sinai. Moses has, uh, is about to go up and, and receive the law, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, from the Lord. But there in Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6, this is what we read. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain and said, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, this is God speaking to Israel, Tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. There, but before God even gave the Ten Commandments and the case law and the laws for sacrifices that would come in Leviticus, what was it that God required of Israel? Obedience, mere obedience. If you will just obey my word, then what? What would be their reward? Their reward for obedience and faithfulness to God would be that they, Israel, would be God's treasured possession among the peoples of the earth, that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Their obedience would be an an outflow of their worship and their love for God. So even before God gives the law, what does he call for his people to do? Obedience. Why? Because of what God has done for them. Because he brought them out of Egypt. He bore them out on eagle's wings. It's because of who God is and what he has done that they obey. But by the time of Jesus' incarnation and his earthly ministry, the religious rulers of Israel, we know as the Pharisees that pop up regularly throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees had made obedience to God's law the sole determiner of worship. Not that obedience was an outflow of a heart of worship, but that obedience was what showed how well you were worshiping. And so highly had they held even the Sabbath day, the fourth of the commands of the Ten Commandments. They held the Sabbath day so highly that they had instituted impossible regulations for what could and could not be done on that day in the name of worship and in the name of rest. And so Jesus here in Matthew 12 Verses 1 through 14, Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, interprets then the Sabbath rightly, and he fulfills the Sabbath completely. He shows the Pharisees where their errors are. And Jesus is not just Lord of the Sabbath, but also a king of mercy, a merciful king. He commands us, then, his followers, his disciples, to pursue the wholeness and the well-being of others over keeping self-righteous religious obligations. Let's look at the text this morning. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. 
At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not heard what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Heavenly Father, God, we we come to you this morning in hearts of uh, humility and submission to your word, knowing that you alone are God and you alone are wise. Holy Spirit, help us in this time to see the text for what it is, to see the word of God as it intersects our lives. And we pray that you would convict us of sin and unrighteousness in our own hearts, things in our lives that we still need to give over to God. Lord Jesus, we ask that this morning you would show yourself to us clearly and that you would show to us clearly what we as disciples, as your followers, are to do and how we are to live and what our worship ought to look like and be characterized. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we look at this text, verses 1 through 14, the first thing we see is that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And he demonstrates this in two different ways. First, he understands, what the, he understands the Sabbath rightly. He understands what the Sabbath is really all about. In verses 3 and 5, we see the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus' disciples about them plucking heads of grain to eat as they walk through a field. So it's a Sabbath day. The Sabbath was Saturday, right? The seventh day. They're walking through a field, and they are plucking heads of grain off of this field, and they're rubbing it in their hands so that the kernels will come come loose, and they'll eat the kernels of grain as they walk on. They're doing what God had provided for the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25. This is not their field that they're walking through. It's somebody else's. But in Deuteronomy 23, 24 and 25... Uh, God says this, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any away in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you may not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. The point is this, for the people of Israel, if you're hungry and you're traveling and you're walking through somebody else's field or somebody else's vineyard, you can eat your fill. Eat whatever you, to fill your belly that day off of your neighbor's produce. Just don't take a doggy bag. Okay, so, so you can eat what will fill your belly, just you can't take extra with you as you go. And that's just part of God's provision for his people by his people. But the Pharisees object to what the disciples are doing based upon the Sabbath regulations, uh, specifically in Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 through 11. That's part of the Ten Commandments. There God says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For within six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a God-commanded thing to have a day set aside in the week for worship. When we looked through the whole book of Exodus several months ago, and we looked at the individual Ten Commandments and what they're saying about God, we saw there that God is the God who provides for all of the needs of his people. And taking a day of Sabbath rest is out of worship to God, is taking a day to reiterate your dependence upon God for all things. We're taking a day away from work so that we might thank God and trust God for the provision of uh, the week that was before and the week that is to come. But the Pharisees took this uh, command from God to not do work on the Sabbath, and, and they, they inflated it, they expanded it. So much so that there was a list of 39 things that you could not do, specific things that you could not do on the Sabbath. Harvesting was one of them, and rightly so. And that's what they're trying to pin on the, uh, on the disciples. They're saying, you're harvesting. You're walking through this field. You're pl- uh, plucking heads of, of, of grain here. You're harvesting. It's not really harvesting. They don't have sickles with them. They're not filling bags with grain. They're not going to go to the threshing floor later. But the Pharisees, in their Pharisaicalism, <laughs> that wasn't a word until three seconds ago, are pinning this sin on the disciples. And they're saying to Jesus, look what your disciples are doing. How could they profane the Sabbath so? And Jesus, knowing their heart, knowing where they're going, addresses their complaint with two examples that they would have been aware of, two examples they would have known, two examples that that if they had been honest with themselves, uh, they would uh, have recognized and realized and not accused the disciples of being guilty on the Sabbath. The first example is that of David. This we see in uh, verses 3 and and 4, right? Jesus says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to do, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests? This uh, event takes place in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. In that place, David was on the run from Saul, right? King Saul, who had lost his mind, quite literally, was chasing after David, trying to kill David. And David, on the run, uses the sanctuary of God, uses the tabernacle of God as a rendezvous point for he and his men. And as was customary, David goes into the tabernacle, and the priest, Ahimelech, is there. And he asks the priest for provision, it's very common in uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, culture for if you were traveling and you stopped at a place to ask someone for provisions, for bread, for food, for a place to stay, and it was customary that they would give you whatever you needed. So David asks for, for some food, give me something to eat. But Ahimelech, the priest, has no food, he has no bread, only the bread of the presence, which is the 12 loaves that, that are baked and are laid out before the Lord uh, there in the tabernacle. He has 12 loaves that have been freshly replaced by, or newly replaced by fresh hot bread. And so he's got these leftover 12 loaves, which the priests were supposed to eat. But instead, Ahimelech, the priest, gives those loaves to David. And David and his men keep. Ahimelech, the priest, in that moment, 
is not sinning, and he's not even condemned for sinning, even though he's doing something against what the law had said. Because the priests were uh, entrusted with the ability to interpret the law rightly. And Ahimelech, in keeping with his priestly interpretation, sets aside particular regulations for the, for the eating of bread by priests only so that he might save the life and preserve the life of David and his men. Ahimelech knows that it's better to give bread to a hungry man than it is to eat it from yourself and let a man go hungry. And so Ahimelech is not condemned for what he does. And Jesus says, remember that? And then he goes on from there in verse 5. He says, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple even profane the Sabbath and they're guiltless? The example here comes from Numbers chapter 28, 8 through 9, where we have instruction for what the priests are supposed to do on the Sabbath. The priests on the Sabbath in the temple, in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple are to offer sacrifices. Sacrifice was work. We, we saw that when we looked at the book of Leviticus a couple of Sunday nights ago. Sacrificing is hard work. You've got to kill an animal, drain all of its blood. You've got to smear some on the altar, smear some on some other things, uh, bless the people. Then you've got to burn the sacrifice. There's a lot of work involved in sacrificing. And yet, even on the Sabbath day, when the priests offer sacrifices, they're not condemned for doing work on the Sabbath. Not just sacrificing, but the priests did other things on the Sabbath as well. In John chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, we see Jesus pointing out that the priests even performed circumcision of, uh, of infant boys on the Sabbath. And that was considered work as well. And yet, even in that, whether they were uh, offering sacrifices or, or performing the sign of the covenant on infant boys on the Sabbath, the Pharisees were not castigating. They were not condemning. They were not bringing judgment on the priests for profaning the Sabbath. The point of the examples that Jesus gives here in David and in the priests and their, their regular weekly work is that things that are done to preserve life and the covenant were permitted on the Sabbath because they are things that honor God, because they're things that exemplify a life of worship, and they're things that seek to preserve the lives of God's image bearers, human beings. What's the, what's the point there? That, that it's better to preserve life than it is to self-righteously hold to the regulations uh, of the law. Why? Because life is more important to God than keeping the law. Then in verses 10 and 12, Jesus moves on from the, the scene shifts from the field and his uh, interaction with the Pharisees to the synagogue. And there in the synagogue, the Pharisees ask him, uh, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Right? And they're trying to accuse him. They're trying to catch him in a logical trap so that they can bring charges against him as one who would blaspheme the Sabbath. His answer, though, turns the question back on them. Look at verses 11 and 12. Right? They say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Pointing to this man with a withered hand. Jesus, in verse 12, says, Which one of you, if you have a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, Jesus says. Jesus here states the obvious in verse 12, Right? If you would go so far as to, on the day of rest, if you have a sheep, or even uh, in Luke chapter 6, we have a similar story. Uh, Jesus also uses the example of a son. If you have a sheep or a son, a kid, who falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you're just going to leave him there because, well, it's the Sabbath and I can't do any work. So. Lord, hopefully you'll just take care of that and I'll be back tomorrow, you know. 
No, Jesus says, that's ridiculous. Of course, you're going to go to the pit. You're going to take out the sheep. Of course, you're going to take out your son, your child, whoever, whoever, whatever it is that falls into the pit because life is valuable and saving and preserving life is more valuable on the Sabbath than not doing work. Jesus says, how much more valuable is the life of an image bearer of God than of a sheep? If you would save a sheep from a hole, why would you not do good to rescue and bring wholeness to a human being on the Sabbath as well? This is all to show that the Sabbath is ultimately about resting in God and, and God's desire that each man, woman, and child be able to rest in God. But it's often so hard to rest in God when our bodies are failing, when our bank accounts are empty, when our children are hurting. And Jesus is here saying, you who love the Lord and his Sabbath so much, Yet ignore and neglect those for whom the Sabbath exists have no understanding what the Sabbath is really all about. If we would go so far as to allow people to walk in their vulnerability, in their hurt, in their pain, and do nothing about it on the Sabbath day, it shows that we don't know the Lord and we don't understand the Sabbath. And we don't value Sabbath rest for other people as well. A child who falls into a pit cannot experience on the Sabbath day Sabbath rest because he's in a pit. Jesus says, give him an opportunity to experience Sabbath rest. Jesus understands the Sabbath rightly. It's, it's not about performing religious obligations. It's about loving the Lord and loving those that, that he has made in his image. And then in verses 6 and 8 and in verses 12 and 13, we see that Jesus fulfills, as Lord of the Sabbath, he fulfills the Sabbath, the Sabbath perfectly. He understands it rightly, and he fulfills it perfectly. Jesus fulfills the Sabbath perfectly because he's greater than the Sabbath and the earthly place of Sabbath worship. Look at verse 6. He gives the uh, example of the priests who profane the Sabbath and are guiltless, and he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The temple was the center of all Jewish, all Hebrew, Israelite worship. There was nothing greater than the temple in Israel. That's where the presence of God rested in between the cherubim atop the Ark of the, uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. There was no more holy place. There was no other place of worship. That was as good as it got in Israel's day in terms of their relationship with God. And Jesus says, something better than the temple is here now. Amen. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that where, where temple worship and regulation, right, they were held sacred by the Jews from the wilderness period until Jesus' own day, right? That's, that's where the Jewish culture found its, its sort of its center, its rallying point. Christ is here saying that he's, he's more than, than the mere manifestation of God on earth. He's more than, than just God's presence between the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. He's God present on earth in flesh, a reality that is far greater than the temple, to be sure. In the temple, right, the different rooms were segregated, and you had to go through a process of moving through the different rooms, and only certain people could move through the different rooms, the different areas, the courtyard, the inner room, and then the, and then the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle and within the temple. You had to be a priest to go into the Holy of Holies, and not just any priest, a high priest, and you could only do that once a year. So only one time out of the whole year could a high priest of the people of Israel be in the very presence of God. And Jesus is saying something better than the temple is here because I'm here, right? God in the flesh. And you don't have to go through all these levels of holiness and other things to get to him. He's not undermining the temple. 
Not, not in any way. He's saying the temple has served its purpose. The temple has been pointing to, to me, and now I'm here. Jesus fulfills the Sabbath because he's greater than the earthly place of Sabbath worship, but he also brings full understanding to the Sabbath, a right understanding to the Sabbath. Verse 7, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. He says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The life of a worshiper of God or of a follower of Jesus is not about proving, friends, how well you follow the rules. It's about loving the Savior in all that you do. Sabbath worship is exemplified not by, not by external duties, but through internal, heartfelt devotion to God. But this is, this is not just a new thing that Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't reinterpreting Hosea 6.6. He's not using it for his own purposes. He's using it in the context and for the purpose which it was originally intended. Mercy over sacrifice, obedience over ritualistic law-keeping is a persistent theme in the Old Testament. Jesus isn't making this up whole cloth here. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22 Samuel says to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen is better than the fat of rams. Psalm 51 verses 16 and 17. This is David's song of confession after his, uh, and of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. He says in his psalm, for you, Lord, will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In Amos chapter 5, if you ever want to feel really just uh, kind of down on yourself, read Amos. Because um, Amos is a, he's a, man, he's got a hard word for Israel. This is the word of the Lord to the people of Israel as Amos is giving this uh, prophecy to them. This is what the Lord says. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What was Israel's problem in that day? The problem was that they were neglecting the poor and the hurting and the vulnerable among them, yet they were keeping all of their Sabbath obligations. They were singing all the right songs. They only ever sang out of the Israelite hymnal. And they always, they always gathered at the same time, the same day to do the same thing in worship every week, every year. They held all of the feasts. They, they celebrated all the feasts that God had prescribed. Every single one of them, never missed a one. Meanwhile, the hungry are starving. The poor are without shelter and clothing. The widow and the orphan are going neglected. But they're doing all the right stuff, right, in worship. They're ticking all the boxes. And what does God say? I hate your worship. I despise it. It disgusts me because your heart is far from me. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What does God want? Does he want your religious obligation? 
No, he wants you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him. It's not just an Old Testament theme, it's a New Testament theme too. And Matthew, later on in the same gospel we're in this morning, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, and this is also repeated in Mark 12 and Luke 10. Jesus um, says there to one who has said, Lord, what is the greatest of all the commands? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Not keep the Sabbath, not do all the right things, the right, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Do that first. And the second greatest commandment, Jesus says, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Catch that? What does God want from you? He wants full, heartfelt devotion to him. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every aspect of your life and being in full devotion and love and worship to him. And then, on the other hand, right, two joined together, he wants you to love your neighbor. Love of God does not preclude love for neighbor. Love of God preempts and gives motive to love your neighbor rightly. If you're only loving God, but you're not extending kindness and mercy to your neighbor, you're not fulfilling the law and the prophets. Jesus is using this argument. He's pointing right back to the Pharisees. You say you love God so much, that's great, but what about your neighbor? What about your neighbor? James 1.27. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What is good religion? What is right religion? What is pure religion? Pure religion is one that flows out of a heart of love for God. And in loving God so much, we turn to our neighbors, to those who are image bearers like us of God, who need him, who are hurting, and we extend mercy and compassion and kindness to them. All of this is not to say, don't hear me say this morning, that care for the vulnerable replaces our worship. Care for the vulnerable and the hurting among us does not replace our worship. Quite the opposite. Worship of the one true and living God moves us to care for the vulnerable out of hearts of worship. A heart of worship wants to meet the needs of those who are hurting. A heart of worship, a heart that truly loves God, wants to care for the needy, wants to feed the hungry, wants to dress the naked wants to visit the orphan and the widow. Why? Because they are human beings like us, made in the image of God, who need to know God. So why can Jesus then, why can he understand the Sabbath this way? Why is it that Jesus fulfills the Sabbath perfectly in these passages? Well, simply because, as he says in verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, who is, as we know from John chapter 1, the living word of God, who was with God in the beginning, through whom all things have been made, as John says, is Lord. And he has authority over all things, as Jesus himself says in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus, has Lord, Lord, Jesus is Lord. He is, has lordship over all things, including and especially Sabbath rest and worship. What was the most important day of the week for Jews, for the Hebrews? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. Six days they were to work, and on the seventh day they rest. Why? Because it's in keeping with the pattern that, that God has in creation, right? Six days God creates, and on the seventh day he rests from all his working. Not because he's tired, but he rests to sit and to rule and to reign over his creation. And so his people are to trust his provision and his sovereignty, and they're to rest on the seventh day. Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the most important day of the week. And church... 
Who else better but the creator of the Sabbath? Who else better qualified to understand then and fulfill it and to call us to have a right understanding and interpretation of it? No one greater. Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, shows us what the Sabbath is all about. And since Jesus is Lord of the most important day of the week, church, he must also then be Lord of all the others as well. If he's Lord of the most important day, he's Lord of all the days, every day. I heard there's a football game going on today. And, uh, and, and I'm sure that we have in our congregation some fans of the teams that are in there. And you might be a diehard fan of one team or the other, or you might just be a fan for today because uh, of your, um, your, your general disposition of uh, hatred toward another team. I don't know. Um, but what do fans do? What do fans of sports do? We show enthusiastic support of the team on the field. We show up, you know, two hours early for the game to tailgate, if that's your thing. And, uh, and then you go to the game, you know, well before kickoff so you can see all the pregame festivities. You might want to watch the team warm up. And then as the, as the game kicks off or the first pitch is thrown or the, the, the tip-off happens or whatever, right? You're just, you're engaged, right? You're cheering for your team. You're cheering against, you're rooting against the other team. You're booing the referees because they make calls against your team when they're not supposed to and they should know better, right? And, and we're just yelling and screaming and we're offering advice from, you know, 300 yards away to the coach about what sort of play he should call because he can hear us, right? And we're just, we're involved, we're enthusiastic, right? But, but you know where we aren't on that day? On the field. Not on the field. Fans don't play games. You can yell and you can scream and you can cheer. It doesn't matter. You're not on the field making plays. You're not on the field calling plays. You're not even up in the, in the box, right, making calls down to the sidelines, telling people what to do or whatever the case might be. Fans don't play games. All they do is observe one event with enthusiasm. But day to day, week to week, they're not putting in the work to practice with the team. They're not putting in the work to make the uh, the team better or to function better. They're not contributing anything to the team other than their enthusiasm. Disciples are not like fans. Disciples don't sit on the sidelines and cheer and root for things and yell at the coach when things go badly and yell at the players when they do something wrong or, or scream their heads off when players do something right. Disciples don't do... Discipleship is not like sports fandom. Discipleship is more like trench warfare. And all of us who are disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, are on the front lines. War is not a spectator sport. Spiritual war is not a spectator sport. Being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus is not a spectator sport. The Pharisees loved to treat their religious duties like a spectator sport. On Sunday, on the Sabbath day, I'm ticking all the boxes. I sang all the songs I was supposed to sing. Check, right? Uh, read from the right scroll, scroll today. Check. Uh, didn't light a fire today. Check, right? Didn't harvest today. Check. All those 39 things. are checking those all off. But, but Sunday through Friday, their hearts are far from God. They don't care about the hurting. They don't care about the needy. They're not, they're not allowing their Sabbath day worship to infect and to affect every day of the week. And in so doing, they show that they're not disciples of God. They're just fans of him. They're just a fan. Hey, God, that's cool. See you in a week. Jesus doesn't call us to be fans. He calls us to be disciples. 
And because he's Lord of the most important day of the week, he's Lord of every day of the week as well. And disciples make Jesus Lord of every day of the week. Disciples' lives are marked by worship every day of the week. Full devotion to God every day of the week. And how does that play out usually during the week? Love for neighbor. Love for neighbor. Love for God starting the day and love for neighbor throughout the day. Taking them the gospel, pointing them to Jesus, binding up the brokenhearted. Are you a fan of Jesus or are you, or are you a disciple? Which do you want to be? If you're content to be a fan, know that you're not a disciple. Know that you're not a follower. If you are content to just be in church on Sunday and check all the boxes and do all the right things and sing all the right songs, you are not a disciple. Disciples are not content on Sundays. Disciples are convicted and challenged on Sundays to extend what God is doing in them on that day in worship and in a community of believers to extend that into the world Monday through Saturday. Are you a disciple or are you just a fan? Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, but in these verses, Jesus is also the King of mercy. We know that he's the king of mercy because we see in verses 1 and verse 7 and verse 12 that his heart is for the vulnerable. Jesus' heart is for the vulnerable. In verse 1, we see here whose actions he's defending, right? Whose actions is he defending in verse 1? His hungry disciples who don't have food to eat that day. They're walking through the field. They're hungry. They got no food, so they start plucking grain, right? And the Pharisees come after him and say, you can't do that. Jesus says, you don't get it. You don't get it. They're hungry, right? Let them eat. And then a statement in verse 7, right? If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Very nearly seems to be the, the point of these Sabbath challenges, right? That, that the, the Pharisees want sacrifice more than they want mercy. They want the keeping of the obligations more than they want mercy. And Jesus is saying, no, God wants, God wants mercy far more than that. Far more than that. We see even his heart for the vulnerable in the man whom he heals in verse 12. He says there, right, of how much more value is a man than a sheep, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man's hand is healed. This man sitting in the synagogue, this man with a paralyzed hand, the the text says a withered hand or maybe a dried up hand. It's a hand that's not useful, it's not usable. Luke 6 tells us that it was his right hand, which is not an unimportant detail. Right? We're aware of the significance of the right hand in Scripture. Right? It's a place of honor. Right? Somebody who's honored sits at the right hand of, of someone in authority. Right? It's the favored side. It's what you uh, use for um, honorable, things of honorable action. But, but also, just mostly, most people are right-handed. If you're right-handed here this morning, raise your right hand. See? That's most of you. If you're left-handed, raise your right hand. I'm just kidding. <laughs> So we don't have that many. We don't have that many lefties, right? It's just the right hand tends to be the dominant hand. So you've got this man with a paralyzed right hand, can't do anything with it. This man, likely because of his condition, was not able to work effectively. Maybe not able to to provide for himself or for his family because of his paralyzed hand. Not able to do the things that he would want to do or ought to do. His prospects in life were limited because of this disability that he has. And he's sitting there in the synagogue on the day of worship. And Jesus says, if it makes sense to save a helpless sheep from a pit on the Sabbath, how much more appropriate then is it to give a disabled man full health and strength on the Sabbath? 
He goes further. He says, it's not just permissible to heal on the Sabbath. You're not just allowed to do it. It's good and it's right to do it. And so then we see in his actions that he desires to bring wholeness and healing to those that are broken and, and struggling. In this passage, in verses 1 and verse 13, we see that Christ's actions and his teaching are for the well-being and the health of the disciples, because they're hungry, and of this man who he heals on the Sabbath. But a short reminder of where we've already been in Matthew shows us that this is not something new in Jesus' ministry. This is something he's always been doing as an integral part of his mission and his ministry. It's not the first time Jesus heals people out of mercy. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. We get this summary statement from Matthew about Jesus' ministry before the Sermon on the Mount begins. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those with afflicted, uh, afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And then Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, a very similar statement. Matthew writes this, Jesus went through all, throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Everywhere Jesus goes in his ministry, he does two things. One, he preaches and teaches the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is coming. The king is here. Turn from your sin. Trust God. And then, two, he exercises compassion and mercy on the hurting and the vulnerable. What does this look like? It looks like loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And that characterizes every aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so what then is he doing here in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14? Well, he's teaching the Pharisees the right understanding of the Sabbath. He's correcting their understanding. He's pointing them to kingdom realities. And then he's exercising compassion on the hungry and on the hurting. In all this church, we should see and we should be challenged by the fact that worship and obedience to the king of mercy should, it ought to, move us to act with mercy and compassion to the hurting and vulnerable among us. If we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we see that God is a God of mercy and of compassion, not just in Jesus, but in the Old Testament as well, how much more then should we extend that same love that God has to broken, messed up people to the broken, messed up people around us? Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century colonial theologian and pastor, in a sermon on Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, he says this, all that we can do is but to profess our love to God. That is to say, there's nothing we can do to love God more than just to profess it, right? God doesn't gain anything from what we do or from what we say. He already owns everything. He's already sovereign over all. He doesn't profit from anything that we give him. So all we can do to show love to him is to profess it verbally and in prayer. He says, but as to our love to man, we can do, no, we can do more than profess that. He says, our virtue extends to men, and therefore, these are the most proper external fruits of our virtue. And because there's nothing that we can do to profit God, he has been pleased to appoint us to show our love to him by expressing our virtue towards men who are within our reach. 
which is a much more acceptable way of doing it than doing it only by professing it in words and gestures. Church, this then is why we do well to, in our ministry as individuals, right, and, and as the church, to pursue a two-pronged approach to gospel ministry in the world. The first prong of gospel ministry is to proclaim the gospel, that God who has created and designed everything and everyone has been shunned by our own hearts that he gave us to freely choose to love and to worship him. But we've chosen the opposite. We've run from God and we've run and chased our own desires. And in our chasing our own desires, we bring sin into the world. And with sin, we bring brokenness. And in our brokenness, we chase after all kinds of things to fix the brokenness that are not God himself. Why would we? We already ran from him. We thought he wasn't the answer to begin with. So we look for other things to, to change our life, to, to make things better, to heal our brokenness. All the while, God knows what it is that, that we need to be, uh, to be healed, right? To be redeemed, to be saved. And so he does something for us that we can't do on ourselves or can't do on our own, right? He sends a son, Jesus, to be born as a man, to live a, a life without sin, the opposite of what we have lived, to die on the cross in our place, for sin, and then to be raised from the dead so that anyone who trusts in Jesus would be saved. God has made a way for us to be redeemed, for our lives to be restored, for our brokenness to be healed in faith and repentance in Jesus. But that requires faith. It requires belief that God is who he says he is, that he does what he says he does, that Jesus is the son of God, that he did live, that he did die, that he was risen again. And it requires repentance, turning away from the things we've been chasing to fix our brokenness and turning back to God and seeing that God has fixed our brokenness in Christ. And in that, in knowing Christ, God then works to restore our lives, to redeem our lives, to put together the broken pieces so that we can live in God's design again. That's the gospel that we preach. That's the first prong of our gospel ministry. So we, we lead with that. We lead with the gospel, but then we follow up with acts of mercy and compassion for our neighbors in need. Why? Because they're broken just like we were. They're hurting just like we were. They're vulnerable like we were. This is why we do things like foster and adopt children in need. This is why we clothe the naked and feed the hungry. This is why we nurse the sick and hold the hands of the dying because they're broken and they're hurting and they're vulnerable, sometimes by sins that they've committed themselves and sometimes as a result of being the victim of someone else's sin. There's just brokenness in the world. We don't do these things. We don't show mercy and compassion to our neighbors in need because this saves people from their sins. That's not why we do it. We don't do it because it saves us from our sins. We don't do it because it proves any of our goodness or our worth to God. We do it because this is what God did for us in Christ, who took mercy on mankind, broken, messed up, disgusting, sinful people, he showed his love and mercy on us so much so as to become one of us to extend the mercy of forgiveness through his death in our place out of his love, Jesus' love and obedience to God the Father. Of his love and obedience to God the Father, he gives his life for us, broken people, undeserving. Friends, today we live in a world that is hurting and is reeling from the ravages of sin. And we see it in the media, we hear it in the news, we see it all the time. 
And we who know the Lord of the Sabbath, the King of mercy, Jesus Christ, we have been commissioned to be agents of the King who proclaim forgiveness of sin by faith in Jesus and who bend down to bind the wounds of the broken. Let's not be like the Pharisees who sought to prove to God their righteousness by ticking all the religious boxes. Rather, let's show the world that that we have truly tasted and received God's grace by giving it in return to the vulnerable and the hurting in the same measure and in the same manner that God gives it to us fully and freely. Is your heart broken for those who are hurting? Is your heart broken, church, Christian, for the vulnerable among us? If someone came running in the doors right now and said there's a child in the street and we can't find their parent, would we just continue on preaching and singing and wait until we're done to go help the child? No, that's foolishness. Because it's a life, a human life we're talking about. And yet we walk past, we ignore, we neglect the needs of broken, hurting, vulnerable people in our lives every single day. And we call ourselves Christians. Look, this text has been tearing me up this week because I drive by people, right, on exit ramps off the freeway who are in need and I don't help with the gospel or otherwise. I don't do it. I know that there are, there are children who are hurting, who are homeless, who are without parents, who need a loving home to live in. And, and I'm not making active steps to make space in my home to receive them. This text hurts because it points out my selfishness. That I want to say I love God, but I don't want to do the things that a loving God does. This this text, it hurts today. But friend, you might be here and you might not be a believer. You, You might be the one who is hurting, who is broken, who knows their life is messed up, who knows that they're running away from God and his design for their life. Here today, don't be, don't be cut up and don't be messed up by this text. Be encouraged by this text today. Know today that if you are vulnerable and hurting and that you know you are far from God, that God has done much to bring you near. And that all you have to do for God to begin to put back together the pieces of your broken life is to trust in his son, Jesus. Give your life fully to him. Turn from your sin and begin to walk as Jesus commands us to walk, to live your life like him. That's all you got to do. And I promise you, on that day when you trust God, the word says that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is God's Spirit himself living in you, and he will begin to put together those pieces. Life's still going to hurt. You're still going to have pain. But, but he's restoring you. He's redeeming you. He's fixing your heart to love him so that you might love others rightly and love others better and love others in a godly way. If you're far from God this morning, you're hurting, you feel vulnerable, you feel broken, this, this morning be encouraged to know that there's a God who loves you and who's extended infinite mercy and compassion to you in his son, Jesus Christ. And he wants you to trust him. He wants to put you back together. He wants to extend his love to you. I invite you to accept that invitation from God today. Christian, maybe you are cut up by this text today like me, and you know you got things in your life that you need to repent of this morning. Right? We need to repent of having hard, calloused hearts. God, soften my heart for those that are hurting. Soften my heart for those that I know need the gospel. 
Show me how to get it to them. Give me opportunities. Give me boldness to preach Christ and him crucified. And then God, put people in my life that I could just extend the love of God to in, in physical, tangible ways so that I can show what, what, what a redeemed life looks like and how a redeemed person loves because of the God that loved him. In a moment, Danny and the praise team are gonna lead us in a song of invitation. This morning, if, not if you need to respond, we all need to respond to this text this morning. But if it's in your case that you want to respond to this text today by giving your life to the King of mercy, to the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who wants to give you real, spiritual, lasting rest, you come forward and talk with me. Pastor Bruce will be up here as well to counsel with you about how you can know Christ and have rest and be right with God. Christian, maybe you need to do some repenting today. You need to do some confessing and some repenting today. The, 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 the altar is open this morning for you to come and kneel in prayer Understand that you are still broken, right? We still struggle with sinfulness every day. We still have things that we need to repent of every day and asking God to heal that brokenness so that you might be a better gospel witness, a more consistent gospel witness to a vulnerable and hurting and a broken world all around us. As I pray, Danny and the praise team come. Let's prepare our hearts to respond in worship this morning.